Good morning, everyone. It looks like the sun might come out. We'll see. You don't see it? I don't see it. Oh, good. Oh, great. Some smart people brought blankets. Great. Well, good morning and welcome. It's so good to be together, even though it's cold. Um, gathering together as God's people is perhaps the most important thing, event-wise, we can do in any given week. So I'm glad you're here with us, glad you're joining us online. My name is Paul Buckley, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we are in the book of First John. We as a church gather together to worship the Lord, and a key part of worshiping Him is being before Him and His Word, listening to Him. He is a God who is alive, and He speaks to us. And through his word, he teaches us, he corrects us, he trains us, uh, he leads us in his righteous ways, he gives us life. Uh, and so it's an important thing for us to be in his word. So we are in chapter 2 of 1 John, we'll be in verses 15 through 17. While you're turning there, let me open up and pointing out the reality that our lives are full of choices. Um, sometimes they can be overwhelming. There's a story about the British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. Uh, in the early 1900s, um, he was at the estate of the Rothschild family, and he was being waited on at tea time by the butler. And the following conversation ensued. The butler said, tea, coffee, or something else, sir? Asquith said, tea, please. China, India, or Ceylon, sir? Asked the butler. China, please. Lemon, milk, or cream, sir? Milk, please, replied Asquith. Jersey, Holstein, or Shorthorn cow milk, sir? It's a joke. Sometimes our choices can be humorous like that. Sometimes they are very serious. And, and so how do we decide? When we have choices that we need to make, how do we decide what to do? And how do we decide for the most important choices we make, really on a day-by-day -day basis, the sort of choices that are the moral and spiritual choices that impact our relationship with God and with others. How do we choose? And why do we choose? Well, today we're going to be listening to the Apostle John as he helps us with one of the most common and important choices we need to make throughout each day. The choice of whether to follow the world or follow God. And God wants us to be equipped to know how to make this choice, to understand what's going on, and to make the right choice. And he's given us his word. He's good. So let's pray that he would speak to us uh, through this section of scripture. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us alone in this important choice that we face every day. That you've equipped us through your word, that you teach us and inform us. And Lord, we also want to be transformed by your word. So we pray today as we are before your word, Lord, would you help me to teach uh, accurately, to teach and serve you and your people in, the, in such a way that we can comprehend these truths and be comprehended by them, be gripped by them, Lord, and to be transformed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world 
is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. God's word from 1 John chapter 2. So we see here right away the call to not love the world or the things in the world. It's very clear in this section that that's what it's about. It's saying, do not love the world. And that is probably a way to sum up this message is simply, do not love the world. But the passage doesn't just say that. It gives us reasons. And and in Scripture, there are uh, words that are used that are clues to the reasons for things that are said, right? So it says, do not do this. And then there's words like if and for and and. Just a good way to study Scripture is to look for those words and to see their connections to the main point that it makes. And so uh, it's where that third grade or fifth grade grammar class comes in handy just to look at these connecting words. And so this message is built around the grammar and structure and the content of this passage. And the central point is, do not love the world. That's the central point. But there are three key reasons that we're going to look at here. And we see them here. First, uh, it's inconsistent, contrary to the love of the Father. Secondly, it's, it's part of the broken system of this world. It's part of fallen humanity. And thirdly, it's passing away. Those are the three reasons. So we're just going to dig into those three reasons and go through that. I'm not going to necessarily, I'm not going to go in the order in our passage. That's because I think the first one that John gives is the most important reason, and that is it's contrary to the love of the Father. We'll finish with that one, but I'll start with verse 16 first. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So reason number one, we do not Love the world because it is the dominion of fallen humanity. It's the dominion of fallen humanity. John calls this dominion of fallen humanity the world. And it would probably be good to talk about that a little bit because the word world is used differently in 1 John and in the Gospel of John as well. The word world is used 23 times in this letter actually. 23 times in in this relatively short book. 50 times in his Gospel. And if you read through, you'll see that it's used differently. And it's really important. This isn't just a, this isn't an academic exercise. This is a really important exercise to get this because the church has got this wrong at times and has, I think, made mistakes. We can make mistakes personally if we don't understand. So there's three different ways that John talks about the world. First, he just uses it to refer to the, this dominion that God created where we live, this place where we live. There's no moral... Uh, judgment in that. It's, it's just saying this is his creation. And so in uh, John, we see uh, John 1, the Gospel of John, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the world is this dominion that Jesus made, this place where he, he comes to dwell. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is just saying, I've come to this dominion as light. So there's no moral judgment here it's just it's creation actually if there's any moral judgment it would be that this creation is good and very good god made this place it's not a bad place even in its fallenness it's full of the glory of god right isaiah isaiah 6 uh, the seraphim cried to each other that, that the whole earth is full of his glory so his glory is on display in creation in the world so that's the first use of the world and that's important to understand uh, unto itself second way that John uses this word world is just to speak of humanity. It's a catch phrase for all of humanity. The whole of humanity. 
And so it speaks in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2. We've seen this already. It says of Jesus, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't die for the actual physical world. Jesus died for the whole world, for all of humanity. And that's what that is meaning there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so it's just a word that means all of humanity. And then the third use is the use that we have here today. And that's the world as a, a place where there's society and culture. Um, and not just society and culture, but godless culture. And that's what it is meant here. The world here is an expression of, uh, of culture and society, godless culture and society. The part of the world, the part of humanity really, that is living life without God at the center. Without depending on God, without honoring God, without loving God without living in His love, without loving others for His sake. It's the godless part of humanity. Uh, that's what he means here. And so he says in this uh, letter, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This doesn't mean that the devil controls the weather in the creation. It doesn't mean the devil controls every part of all of humanity. It means that he controls the godless part of humanity. That he is able to, to, to have... A leverage there because of its godlessness. Uh, later on he's going to say that we're not in this world. Greater, the, uh, greater is he who is in us than the one who is in the world. Um, and so this is the part of society that's denying God, that's actively denying Him. It's important to understand these differences because we can get them confused and it leads to some very serious errors actually. Um, so so John isn't saying that to not love the world means we must abstain from music. Don't listen to music. Or don't be interested in fashion. Or don't be interested or engaged in media. Or don't engage philosophy or technologies. He's not saying that. Those are things that are part of the reality of living in God's creation as those made in the image of God. They're part of His design for the world and His design for culture even. He's not saying that. He's not saying the answer here is to isolate yourself somehow from society and from culture. To isolate yourself or your church. It's not about creating some sort of disconnected, isolated culture and disparaging the rest because you have the right culture. If you do that, you'll find that actually you have some worldliness in your culture as well. You can't get away from this, this battle, this reality. Choosing to not love the world is really choosing to reject those aspects of the current world that are godless and broken and ultimately evil. It's really important to get that. Um, otherwise, we will end up despising His creation, which is good. We do, might despise the physical. Often this is an error the church has gone into. It's like, the physical is evil, the spiritual is good. So be spiritual. That's how you get away from the world. That's not what it's saying. We might think that separation is the pathway to holiness. And that's not what it's saying here. He gets very specific actually. So, so we, don't, uh, we can look in many places in Scripture to understand this, but John actually helps us because he brings specificity to it. He says these are the things of the world. He describes the things of the world. And he says these things of the world are, are what? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, 
and the pride of life. Um, these are the three elements that he says are comprise the world. For all that is in the world. It's interesting, he uses the world all. Your translation may say everything. So he's saying this is what the world's about, this stuff. So it's a very clear definition. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three things comprise the world. Let's see if I can change my note page without having it fly away in the wind. So these are the three things, these desires. It's important to understand that the desires that he speaks of, the word desire actually is a word that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just like our word desire. Matter of fact, elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says, I desire to eat this meal with you. He's not lusting to eat a meal with them. He's not craving to eat a meal. He just simply desires to eat a meal. So it's a a word that can be used in in all sorts of ways. The predominant use in Scripture is negative. And there's the implication here that it's it's basically an unhealthy desire. It's It's a desire that's more than a natural desire. It's a craving. Like, I gotta have this. I'm obsessed with this. I... Uh, it's a lust, so your translation might say cravings or lust, uh, and that's why. And so it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life. So first, the lust of the flesh, or the cravings of the flesh. This is speaking of the sorts of things that we desire too much, that are part of our humanity. There's one aspect of this that's just simply a part of being human. You have desires, you have uh, things that you want. Right now you might have a desire for food. You might be hungry. Right now you might have a desire for warmth. I hope you do. I do. Um, you desire for it to be warm. Uh, that's a fine thing. But that desire for warmth might control you to the point where you get up and you run out of here and go get in your car or something and say, forget church, right? So it starts to take over. It becomes the most important thing. It becomes at some point perhaps an unhealthy desire. I actually can't think of many instances of that, but I guess the desire for warmth could be unhealthy. You isolate yourself from everybody to get around the fire. I don't care about people. I just want to be warm. Maybe that's an example. But that's the sort of thing that John is talking about. It's when those desires that are normal and healthy become controlling. Um, Theologians call this an inordinate desire. It just means disordered, out of order. It doesn't have its proper place. It takes over. It controls us. So... You might be hungry, right? And, th- and that's a normal, healthy desire. It keeps us fed and fueled. Um, it helps us to enjoy. Food is a blessing from God to be enjoyed in the right way. But that desire might take over. You might be hangry, right? Anyone here ever be struggle with being hangry? I hope you're not hangry right now. But that's the hungry, angry thing, right? And you're really irritable and you're mean to people just because you're hungry. Um, that desire for food starts to take over and and you don't care about people, you just care about getting that food somehow. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing. And um, it, it can also be uh, feed to an even more serious un- inordinate desire of gluttony, where you're filling your life because it feels empty with food. Food becomes your God. Food becomes the thing that brings you comfort and, and, and satisfaction. And gluttony takes over. Um, so that's the sort of thing he's speaking of. Sex is a common... Uh, example of this, sex is a desire that often becomes inordinate. Sex is a good thing given by God. Your sexuality is an inextricable part of your being connected to you being made in the image of God as male or female. 
So sex drive and sexuality is a good thing. And it's part of being human. It's not something evil. That's really important to get. The church has made errors here too. Um, your sexuality is a gift from God. It's how He expresses Himself, making you in the image of God as male or female. But it can become an inordinate desire that takes over. It can be misdirected. It can dominate you and, and become something that brings destruction to you and to others. And it really, it, it, its destruction is aimed at the image of God. When this one is off, it distorts the image of God. That's part of why it's such a serious sin when, when we give ourselves to an inordinate desire here. There's lots of other desires that are, are, that are in line with this. The desire for peace or order can lead to being controlling. The desire for intimacy can, can lead to all sorts of problems. If it's a controlling desire, the desire to be loved and accepted or to be healthy or to be prosperous or to, or to have friends. Um, the desire to understand things, to have knowledge. All these things can become inordinate. Uh, the desire to see our loved ones excel in these things as well. The desire for our children in these areas can become inordinate. Um, and that's what John's talking about, the desires of the flesh. When, when these things take over and they are out of order. There's also an aspect of, of it living in the flesh and our fallenness. Even if you're a believer, um, we still carry with us a, a fallen nature. We are new creations. That's really important to get. The Spirit of God lives in us and there are new desires in us that are more powerful than the desires for these other things. But we still have in us this fallenness and these desires of the flesh. And the flesh is fallen and at its core it does not love God. It does not want to live for God. It wants to live for anything else but God. And we carry that with us. This, this fallenness, this sinful flesh that doesn't want to follow God. It opposes God and His ways. And it's there, it's there in us. It's in all of us. And it will be with us till we go to be with the Lord. Um, and we see it in different ways. Uh, it, it's just, it's there. Um, one of the ways that I see it is when I want to pray, um, I suddenly will find myself very sleepy. Why does that happen? I can do other things. If I want to play a video game, I don't have that happen to me. If I get on the video game, I wake up. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. But when I want to pray, it's like, oh. Um, and that's why I have to pray. I, do, I walk and I pray, and that helps me a lot. Um, and, well, where does that come from? I, it's our flesh. Our flesh doesn't want to pray. and It's, it's just uncanny. Um, we also see it too as, our, as we encounter the law of God. The law of God is good. It's all good, right? The law of God is the details of loving God and loving others. And yet when, when we bring the law to bear, there's just something in us that says, no, I, I don't want to do the thing just because you, says I, just because you say I have to. Um, it, it's, it's in us. That's how, how we are in our fallenness. And we see this. You see it in little kids. I can remember um, when I think our oldest was, a, was just beginning to get old enough to help him understand right and wrong, like don't do this. And we did this exercise with this, the stereo. We said, uh, Daniel, don't touch the stereo. And he understood what that meant. And we put him on the other side of the room. He looked at us. He looked at the stereo. And, and you know what he did? Made a beeline for the stereo. <laughs> um, that's how, that's how, how we do things. That's who we are, right? If... Um, if there's a speed limit out there, we break the speed limit, right? I mean, if there weren't speed limits, we probably would drive, maybe we'd drive more slowly, I don't know. But, but with, you know, it's just there's a speed limit sign, and you break it. That's, 
That's the flesh in us. We just want to, to rebel and do our own thing. And that's the reality. So there are these natural healthy desires and there's this evil desire in us as well. And when those things rule us, they are the desires of the flesh. That's what John's talking about. He also talks about the desires or lust or cravings of the eyes. These are the unhealthy desires that arise as we see things. Um, it's particularly in the area when we see something beautiful. And we want that thing. And it becomes a, an obsession. It starts to rule us. It starts with a beautiful thing, though, and that's important to get, too, is that th it's not the fault of the thing. And it's not that you, the solution here is to say, well, that's not beautiful. It, it, it usually is a beautiful thing, legitimately beautiful, and, and, and physical beauty has its place in creation. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is that, that because it's beautiful in appearance, whatever it may, may be, there's more to that thing than its beauty, though. And that's where we get off because that beauty, that physical beauty does not define the essence of the thing and it doesn't warrant your ownership of it, right? So if you see something beautiful, there's more to that thing than just its physical appearance. And certainly if it's a human being, there's a lot more to that person than their physical appearance. And we don't own that thing. and We don't own that person. But we have this brokenness in us. We see, we admire, we want, we get obsessed and we live in this worldly way of doing things. We can do it with all sorts of beautiful things. We can do it with people. We can do it with the opposite sex. We can do it with the same, uh, same sex. We can do it with our own beauty. We can do it with the beauty of things like home and garden. We can do it with fashion. We can do it with, with food. We can do it with technology. We can do it with Lamborghinis. Um, last week, I was driving down Main Street and there was a Lamborghini. Who here knows what a Lamborghini is? You guys are right? Lamborghini is like one of the coolest cars you could ever see. Um, driving down Main Street Haverhill, I was like, what's he doing driving down Main Street in Haverhill with his Lamborghini? But anyhow, I saw this Lamborghini up ahead of me. And I was like, whoa, a Lamborghini. Um, and, and so I uh, just kind of followed it. And there was two cars in front of me. And then uh, coming over the Bassler Bridge, it kind of goes to two lanes. So I got in the other lane and drove up alongside the Lamborghini. And was like, that is a Lamborghini. And it was uh, black with red trim, and, and uh, it was beautiful. And I actually did like, think about, well, it would be kind of cool to drive that Lamborghini just for a little bit, um, you know, just to see how fast it would go and things like that. And, um, but I wasn't, it may sound like I was, but I wasn't like lusting after Lamborghini. I was enjoying its beauty. I didn't have a thought like, I got to have that Lamborghini. I, I have a new life purpose now to own a Lamborghini. And I didn't think that. I thought, well, that's beautiful. And, and uh He's got to be careful driving on Main Street with his Lamborghini with his two-inch clearance and, and so forth. And, but I was, at that point, I was like, that's cool, but I actually like my classic all-wheel drive 2004 Ford Explorer because it's great. It's, it only cost me 2000 bucks. It's going to last me, Lord willing, 10 years. It's got all-wheel drive. I don't have to worry about scratching it. I can get through the snow and the mud. And if I had $400,000, I wouldn't spend it on a car. I'd spend it somewhere else. So I, was, I didn't get to that place, but it was a beautiful car. And, and, and perhaps I could have been drawn in and started you know, going to the point where it was craving. Um, but, but I didn't, thank God. Um, but we all have our Lamborghinis, right? We all have things we admire. 
We all have things that are beautiful, and, and to some degree, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And you have things that you consider beautiful. And the problem isn't the beauty of that thing, whatever it might be. It's in how you think about that thing. Do you lust after that thing? Do you find your life in that thing? Do you replace God with that thing? Do you find more joy in that thing or the, or the prospect of owning that thing than you would in knowing God? That's the issue. That's when it becomes a, a lust of the eyes. When there's not love for God and love from God present and love for that person present, those things take over. Well, the third aspect of this that John talks about is, is the pride of life. The, the New International Version from 1984 that uh, I, I memorized in the, when I was young uh, calls it the boasting of what he has and does. The pride of life, the boasting of what he has and does. And the idea here is taking pride in the means of life. The things in life that you have, like money and possessions and property and food or prestige and power. The things of life, the means of life. Pride, boasting, finding yourself in that stuff that is part of life and there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. It's part of life, but it's not meant to be the center of your life. It's not what you're to live for and live from. Jesus said one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life isn't found in these means of life. And Jesus says that, but the pride of life says the opposite. It says, no, that's not true. My life depends on what I have. I won't be anybody until I have social status. I won't be somebody unless I have a respectable job. I won't be somebody unless I have a successful family. I won't be somebody unless I have a big retirement plan. I won't be somebody unless I can stop driving this jalopy and drive a Lamborghini. I won't be somebody unless I have a college degree. I won't be somebody unless I'm a, a, a significant athlete or artist or nurse or engineer or business person or whatever. That's the pride of life. Where you define yourself by those things and not the love of God. And we can all be swayed by that. We can all find our pride in these things. And we can all be really good actually at kind of hiding it. Where we're, we're kind of, you know, we know it's not good to kind of be too forward about these things and we're supposed to be humble and our culture, you know, has that value that you don't want to be proud, you want to you be humble, but we can be very subtle and these things can come out in what's called humble brags. Have you guys ever heard of the term humble brag? Um, you see these things on social media um, and they go like this, like on Twitter or somewhere or Facebook, uh, something like this. I am truly humbled that 100,000 people would, would think that my Twitter account is worth following. Or, it felt so good to help a homeless person today. I don't deserve the privilege of helping others. I learned so much from them. Or, can't believe how smart my kids are. They all got into Ivy League schools. Where do they get it from? Must be my better half. Or, so, so embarrassed that a guy asked me out when I was wearing sweats and a baseball cap without any makeup. Or, I don't know why so many people love our church. We're just a bunch of nobodies following Jesus. Humble brags. Ways where we're actually trying to hide the fact that we have the pride of life, but we're not doing so good a job at it. I don't know if you've ever humble bragged. I'm sure I have. If I look through my social media, I'm sure I could find it. But this is when you love the things of life more than God.
and the love that comes from God. We mustn't trade the love of God for the love of the world. That's what this passage is teaching us. For all that is in the world, the cravings of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what we have and what we do comes not from the love of God, but from a broken, sinful worldliness opposed to God. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. They are opposed to each other, so choose wisely. So that was the first reason. Second reason is because this world is passing away. It says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world and its cravings are passing away. This worldly system, this godless aspect of society, and all those who follow it are passing away. They're fading from view. They're being displaced. They may resist the trend. They may continue to exist alongside the growing kingdom of God. They may reassert themselves in force at times, but they are ultimately fading away. And although they might attempt a last uprising as we read Revelation, they will be crushed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The world is on the losing side. Now we may live in a time where the world seems to have the upper hand, but this godless aspect of humanity will not endure. It will be gradually displaced in many ways by the kingdom of God. And though it may remain alongside the kingdom up until the very end, it will be wiped out upon Christ's return. And all those who follow the world and follow the cravings of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life will fade and be subject to judgment and eternal destruction. You see, this fading is not fading into oblivion. It's not annihilation. Ultimately, it's being displaced and then judged and sequestered to everlasting judgment apart from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might, living in eternal regret for joining the losing side. That's what's happening. That's what John is saying. The world and its desires are passing away. They are losing but the one who does the will of God will remain, will win, will be victorious on the playing field, the battlefield, in the end. That's what we're being taught here. The one who does the will of God. Well, what does that mean? What is the will of God? We, what have we learned in 1 John so far? What is the will of God? To believe in the one He sent, right? To believe in Jesus. To believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who died on the cross for our sin, rose again victorious over sin and death. That in Him, we, as we put our faith in Him, not the world, not ourselves, as we turn away from sin, in Him there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's new life, there's love that can fill our hearts to love God and love one another. That is the will of God, to, to receive the one He sent and then to live in following Him, which means to love each other. To receive Christ and to live in love. That's the will of God. And the one who does that, who lives in this, will abide forever is what John is telling us. As we live in this love, as we treasure this love, as we bask in this love, as we depend on this love, as we live in the light and bring our sins to the light, as we receive forgiveness and trust in Him and love one another, we will abide forever. He fills us with His life, a life that is eternal. 
It may be that, it will be that it is imperfect, but nevertheless we are walking with Him, living in the light, doing His will and abiding forever. So why don't we do that? Why don't we choose the, the winning side? Well, at times it feels like we're, we're on the losing side, doesn't it? We can be surrounded, we are surrounded by the world, and we might feel like, well, it's the world that will abide forever. It's the world that's in control. And God's people are being crushed. And His truth and ways are mocked. And we're losers. That can be why we, we choose the world instead of God. But it's foolishness. It's foolish in the long run because the world and its desires are passing away. And I would say it's foolish in the short run because the ways of God are ultimately the most true, most good, and most glorious things. And so you are choosing the lesser when you choose the world. And you are also choosing the losing side. Despite what the world might say, we are on the winning side when we are doing the will of God, when we're walking with Christ. Do you guys remember how it felt back in 2017? Just after halftime, when the Patriots were playing the Falcons? It was 28-3. to uh, about eight minutes left in the third quarter. And I won't name any names, but most of the people I was with had pretty much no hope at that point. I think there was talk about going home and calling it a night. Do you remember how it felt at that point? You felt like you were on the losing side, didn't you? And all hope was lost. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know the rest of the story. That it was the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Sorry if you're not a Patriots fan. Um, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to. Well, I won't say anything more. I just, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> humble bragging, yes. <laughs> We're allowed to do that with the Patriots, though, aren't we? Um, greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. 34-28 to in overtime. Greatest Super Bowl game perhaps ever. 30 different records broken, including passing, total passing yards, completions, First downs, total offensive plays, largest deficit overcome, most touchdowns by an individual, um, and oldest starting quarterback. That's the rest of the story, right? That you didn't know at the time. But there was more to the story. Well, what John is giving us here is the rest of the story. This world and its desires are fading away. That's the losing side. And there's a winning side in Christ that will abide forever. He is working His work and there are already signs of what He's doing. The world and its desires will pass away. The light is already shining. There is change happening. The nations are hearing the Gospels. More and more uh, groups, ethnic groups are coming to faith. The bride is being made ready. The promises of God are being fulfilled. The great commission is being accomplished. The full number of the Gentiles will come in and then the Jewish people will be made jealous and come in mass to the real Messiah. That's all in Scripture. Those are the promises that are there, that, that are going to be fulfilled. And then the King will come. And you will be rewarded in full for your faithfulness when you felt like you were on the losing side. You will see the fullness of that. Don't choose the wrong side. Don't choose the losing side. And then finally, and more quickly, and more centrally in all these things, do not choose the world because it's contrary to the love of God. 
Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's contrary to love of God to love the world. The love of the Father isn't there. And this is the love of the Father that comes from the Father to us through Christ. So it's, it's speaking of the love that comes from the Father to us. And then we receive that and live in that and identify ourselves in that and rely on that. And then we love the Father and we love those who love the Father and we love all men. From that love in us. That's what it's speaking of. And the love of the world is contrary to the love of the Father. It's the opposite. You cannot love the world and love the Father. The world is an enemy of the Father. And your flesh, if you give in to your flesh, you will live as an enemy of the love of the Father. There's a brokenness in us. Both in, both in the abuse of our natural desires as well as following our evil desires. Letting the lust of the eyes rule us. Letting the, the beauty of that thing take over and forget about the goodness of that thing and the goodness of God in designing that thing. It's the opposite of the love of God. You can't do both. And He loves us. And if we understand that love, it transforms us and empowers us to relate to the world differently and to re relate to creation differently and to relate to others differently. When the love of God fills our hearts and changes our lives, it reorients us in a new way. We're freed from the slavery of craving and letting our desires rule us. And the things that God made are transformed from idols that we crave to means of grace whereby to love and worship God and serve others. They're transformed from idols to means to love God and love others. And we're freed from craving. The things that once bound us now find their proper place, ordered according to God's design for the worship and enjoyment of God and the flourishing of life. Even the difficulties of life get transformed in the love of God. The sufferings we endure are no longer cursings, but blessings used to teach us more about the love of God and the purpose of life. They help purify us from an excessive love of the creation that we might more deeply love the Creator. This is what the love of God does. It, it puts everything in order. It doesn't make us pull away from creation and, and abstain from the things that God has made, but to employ them and enjoy them with God at the center and loving others. I saw this happen in, in the life of one of our Alpha guests when we run the Alpha program. He talked about the change that he experienced when he came to Christ. Before Alpha, he hated winter. He hated when the trees would lose their leaves and he would look at it just as ominous and dark and depressing. And when he came to Christ and he understood the love of God in Christ, all of a sudden the winter landscape was transformed for him. And he saw glory and goodness in the trees and the snow and, and just the, the, the wonder of the season. The love of God had changed him so he related to these things differently. That's what happens when the love of God is in our lives. All things are changed. We, they find their proper place. They're put to holy use. And they submit to the King of Kings. So, stop loving the world. Stop letting your cravings rule you. 
Let the love of God fill you and motivate you to love Him and love others. And then let those desires fit in their proper place in love. No longer needing to have things or popularity or food or sex or money or music or control or self-rule, but to be free in Him to love. In conclusion, let me reread this short passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with this desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this new life we have. We thank You for the transforming effect of Your love. And we pray that we could live in this reality. That we'd be free. Not loving the world, but living in Your love and loving one another. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.